Well, welcome everyone. I'm so glad that you're here. And today I'm going to try to do a shorter video and we're going to talk about Sam Harris. Sam Harris, uh, because I'm trying to do a shorter video, I found a video that's from several years ago, I think it's 2011, where Sam Harris was asked by some group whether there is a possibility of a creator. And so he makes a few comments um, and we're going to see that uh, he never actually directly addresses the question. Uh, it turns into more of, uh, I think he interprets the question as, what do you think broadly about religious belief? But um, we're going to take a look at his answer to the question, is there a possibility of a creator? By the way, um, I have never interacted with Sam Harris. I'd be happy to. I'd love to have a discussion or something like that. Um, after all, uh, Matt Dillahunty, who I have debated, has had a sit-down discussion with Lawrence Krauss and Sam Harris. And so um, if that opportunity ever materializes, I would love to take advantage of that. But nevertheless, we're going to look at his words right now and see what he has to say about the possibility of a creator. If you'd like more on Sam Harris, uh, if you'd like to see another Christian interact with him, uh, check out William Lane Craig's debates with uh, Sam Harris because um, I think they're just fantastic. Uh, I think those are uh, clear wins for William Lane Craig. But let's take a look. Uh, Sam Harris is a really smart guy. Let's see what he has to say about this question. Well, the, the, there are many problems with this idea that, I mean, first of all, that, that's an unfalsifiable thesis, I mean, and there are infinite numbers of unfalsifiable theses that you're not tempted to believe. And we could believe that this is, we're in the matrix, and, you know, I mean, that, that you go down that uh, path, and there's uh, a lot that could be asserted by people who are sure we're in the matrix, and we're, you know, some alien civilization is simulating us on a, their hard drive. Um, uh, one problem is that we have... Okay, we'll get into his next problem in a moment. But um, first of all, he raises the issue of falsifiability. Now, notice that he didn't answer the question, uh, unless the answer to that question is, well, yes, maybe it's possible, but there's really no way for us to know. It could be something like that. But what he raises is an issue called falsifiability. Now, I have made the mistake in past videos of presuming that everyone listening is familiar with all these terms, and maybe you're not familiar with what we're talking about when we say falsifiability. Christianity, even though I'm a Christian, Christianity is falsifiable. And that doesn't mean that it's false. What it means is that if that there are ways that if it were false, you could show that it was false, at least in principle or theoretically. And so the idea is that when you're doing worldview analysis or you're testing hypotheses, um, it counts in favor to a certain degree in us having good reason to believe a particular position if it has this principle of falsifiability. Um, because if it has that, then it's, it's, it's a way of saying that if, if this were false, you should be able to show that it's false. So, um, for example, uh, there are no married bachelors anywhere in the physical universe. I don't know that because I've gone all over the physical universe and haven't found any. It's because the very idea of a married bachelor is um, has logical contradictions in it. Um, the, the way you falsify the idea of a married bachelor is to show that if you are married, you are not a bachelor. And if you are a bachelor, you are not married. Therefore, the idea of a married bachelor is false. There are, there are no married bachelors. It's a contradiction. And uh, you, could, you could go about demonstrating falsifiability in, in other ways. 
Um, so when it comes to uh, a creator God, is the idea of a creator in general falsifiable? Now, he likens it to the matrix. Um, it could be that we are all just in the matrix and we have no way to show that. We have no way to demonstrate that. Or uh, maybe we're in a computer simulation on some alien spaceship somewhere and we're just uh, you know virtual beings or something. How would you ever show that that's not true? Because you can't get outside of um, what you're in. You can't get outside of the world that you're inhabiting to demonstrate that it's not true. So um, it just doesn't have falsifiability, but we don't waste too much time worrying about it. And we just don't, most people don't believe that to be the case anyway. So he's likening it to that. So it sounds like his answer to the question, is it possible there's a creator? Would have to be yes. So thanks for that, Sam Harris. High five. Uh, but is it like that really? Well, maybe the idea that there is some creator out there, but that's not where it ends. Of course, I'm a Christian. And I understand he was asked about a creator in general, but he's going to take it to specific religions right now. So let's take a look. We have many holy books authored by the creator of the universe, and they're in conflict. You know, they're not. It, the New Testament makes it perfectly clear that Jesus is the Son of God, really the Son of God, and you have to believe this, otherwise you're going to spend eternity in hell. The Quran says twice that Jesus was not the Son of God. And anyone who believes he's the son of God will spend eternity in hell. I mean, this, is, this offers as much room for compromise as a coin toss. Uh, so so let's, say, let's say we just knew that one of those claims were, was... Okay, well, we're going to hear the rest of what he says. But um, so let's take something uh, a little bit more aside from the God question. And let's talk about multiverses for a minute. Um, is the multiverse theory falsifiable? Not really. I can't see how. It seems to be non-falsifiable, um, which counts against it. This is why guys like Sean, it doesn't mean it's not true, but really what you're saying is, uh, I don't have to, if you're saying, I don't think it should have to have falsifiability, I don't have to provide evidence for it, right? This is why somebody like Sean Cole is arguing that uh, multiverse uh, hypothesis shouldn't have to follow this principle of falsifiability. So, um, but let's take something like the multiverse, which may not have falsifiability. Okay, the idea in general may not be falsifiable, but you could take the particular workings of individual astrophysicists or whatever, or cosmologists, and they, their claims about the multiverse, the, the reasons they're giving for why you should believe in the multiverse, their model of the multiverse might be falsifiable. So a lot of times what you'll get with multiverse theory is uh, mathematical equations that show that this could work given if these numbers were correct. Well, you, you may come up with various models that rely on different uh, mathematical schemes. And if you could show a problem in um, astrophysicist A's uh, model versus astrophysicist B, you may not have falsified the multiverse in general, but you falsified this guy's model. And so uh, that's like unto what we're talking about here. Whether or not you think the idea of some creator in general has falsifiability, which we could talk about that, but if we're talking about specific religious claims, specific theologies, those are falsifiable. So he's mentioned too, like you've got Islam on the one hand and you've got Christianity on the other. Is Christianity falsifiable? Yes. 
if Christianity says Jesus is the Son of God, and that's a part of what we're talking about when we talk about the nature of God, and if Christianity describes the Father, God the Father, uh, in specific ways and gives him certain attributes, then if you can find uh, something, let's say, in God's nature that so defined by a Christian theist is incoherent or involves some contradiction, then you have falsified the Christian God. People try to do this. Now, they're unsuccessful as far as I'm concerned, and I need to find someone doing uh, uh, an argument from evil and we'll respond to that in a video one of these days. But um, when people bring a logical or evidential argument from evil, what they're trying to do, particularly in a logical argument from evil, is they're trying to show that there's something incoherent in the idea of God so defined. So if you ever run into a particular skeptic, an atheist or somebody who says that uh, God, you know, you can't, we, we, it's not up to us to show that God doesn't exist because you can't prove a negative. Um, now, that's a different criticism of showing that God doesn't exist because you don't bear the burden of proof. But if they say that, you know, you can't prove a negative, so of course we can't show that God does not exist. Well, you, you actually can prove a negative. You can show. Remember, we just did it a few moments ago with the married bachelor. We showed, I think, conclusively that there are no married bachelors anywhere in the cosmos. Why? Because the very concept is incoherent. And if you could do that with the nature of God, then you could show that God doesn't exist. So in a logical argument from evil, some people will try to say if God is all-loving and and all-powerful. Now, that's a specific God claim. You could have a type of God that is not all-loving or is not all-powerful or something like that, and this wouldn't work. But remember, if we're talking about theism as it's described by Christians and perhaps some other monotheists, if it is the case that you're trying to show that, it, that, that if you could show that uh, this God, that God so defined by, say, Christians is his being all-powerful and all-loving means we should find no cases of suffering or evil, then you would have falsified Christianity if that argument went through, because you'd have shown that that God is incoherent. Uh, fortunately, uh, there are great responses to logical arguments and evidential arguments from evil. And in fact, if you'll go to the topical videos on youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter and go to my discussion on why do bad things happen uh, to people, then you can actually see uh, my running through some of that evidence in a much shorter than usual 11 minute video. So, but the point is that even though I don't think that Christianity is false, and I think that attempts to show that it's false fail, we do have the principle of falsification. That is, we're giving you ways that if it were false, you could demonstrate that it was false, like finding something contradictory in the nature of God, or if you could show that Jesus uh, never, uh, that Jesus never rose from the dead. Now, you might think that's too grand. Like, how could we ever? show that? How could we ever find the bones of Jesus? And even if we found the bones of Jesus, how could we determine that these were the bones of Jesus? We could go about it another way. You could say, find, uh, if we were to find some writings that we had very good reason to believe were written by one of Jesus' other disciples or someone very close to one of Jesus' other disciples, and they were saying, hey, these guys are running around saying that Jesus rose from the dead. It's bunk. I knew about it. Um, and and, and if we, especially if we had multiple letters like that, well, then that, that would serve as evidence toward a falsification of uh, the resurrection. So there are ways that you could falsify Christianity, and there's certain way, certainly ways you could falsify Islam. Now, uh, but notice what he's done here. He's been asked, is, is it possible there's a creator? Is, is there a possibility of a creator? And his answer to that is to say, well, how would we ever show that there wasn't a creator? And um, which we've just given you some for specific religions. And uh, among these different religions, say we've got Islam on the one hand and Christianity on the other, and they're making contradictory claims toward each other. Not, not uh, Christianity doesn't make internally contradictory claims, but toward each other, they're making contradictory claims. So uh, 
you know, Christianity says that Jesus is the Son of God in the New Testament, and the Quran, uh, he says, says that he's not. Okay, well, then it's just up in the air. It's like a coin toss, he says. Well, is it really like a coin toss? No, it's nothing like a coin toss. It's not like we have no way to investigate that. There are a lot of things we could do to investigate the question of which of these two religions is more likely to be true. Um, because whether you think that both of them are false or not, one of them is certainly more likely to be true than the other. Uh, so that's a good place to start. So Christianity, I would say, is much more likely to be true than Islam for a number of reasons. First of all, if we're considering the claims of their uh, documents, uh, it's, as any good researcher will know, you want to get to the earlier documents, the earlier sources for an event. And uh, Christianity's central historical claim is the resurrection of Jesus. And the uh, Quran does say he did not die. They did not crucify him. And of course, the New Testament clearly teaches that he did die and they did crucify him. Um, so it's hard to have a resurrection if you don't first have a, a death of Jesus at the crucifixion. So we have two competing claims. Which one should, which historical claim should we go with? Should we go with the one that happened uh, in the that we have recorded from the first century, or should we go from, with the one from several centuries later, uh, whenever uh, we have the Quran? Well, clearly we should go with the one that's much earlier. So right off the bat, uh, the earlier historical claims are much have much more weight than the ones written by people who are not at all within the living memory of the disciples centuries later. Uh, just think about if today a modern American were to make some claim about one of the founding fathers of America. Uh, what should we believe? Should we believe his claims uh, based on his claims that someone appeared to him and told him this? Or should we believe the historical documents from the period? Well, we should believe the ones that have the weight of earlier history. So right off the bat, we've got uh, a, a, an evidence that this is not at all like a coin flip. Uh, secondly, um, uh, we could actually look at the Quran and see that there's really good reason to believe that uh, the Quran's message about God um, and about Jesus should not be believed because there are major problems with Islam. And I'm talking about a mere Islam here. I'm not like some, like C.S. Lewis said, a mere Christianity. I'm talking about a mere Islam here. I recommend a book. Um, I think it's called Answering Islam uh, by Norman Geisler and Abdul Salib that, that kind of addresses this. And uh, I, I break it down into, let's just very quickly, because we don't have time to go through this whole thing. And if you want much fuller responses to Islam, you could go check out David Wood's channel. I think it's Acts 17 Apologetics is his YouTube channel. And you get all the discussion of Islam that you want. But um, first of all, we could look at just uh, three things. We could look at the person of Muhammad. Uh, the Quran and the nature of Allah. Well, uh, the, it, within Islam, a prophet is supposed to be someone who has um, impeccable character and is basically sinless. Um, now, sin is conceptualized a little bit differently in Islam than it is in Christianity, but still, nevertheless, supposed to be a man of a prophet is supposed to be a man of impeccable character and basically sinless. Um, one of the highest sins that you can commit in Islam is shirk. If the satanic verses are true, then we have good reason to believe that Muhammad himself committed shirk uh, by uh, appealing to uh, other gods besides. Uh, just Allah. So you can check those uh, verses out if you want. So even by the Quran's own standards, it doesn't look like Muhammad is a very good prophet. Uh, secondly, you can just take a look at the inconsistency in the polygamy laws related to Muhammad as opposed to others and uh, his views on retaliation. And we do not see a man of impeccable character, and, and he's certainly not basically sinless. 
In fact, we have examples uh, where Muhammad needs to be forgiven of things and that sort of thing. So uh, that's the person of Muhammad. Obviously, there's a lot more we could say there. The Quran, uh, there are problems with scientific accuracy in the Quran. Uh, also, one of the reasons given why we should trust the Quran is that it is a divinely unique literary style. There's the most beautiful literature ever written. And God gives people evidence based on the sorts of things that they would receive during the period in which they live. That's why uh, they would say when you have um, in Moses' day, these kind of magic trick sort of things are what people uh, like to see. And so God did that sort of thing with, say, the, the uh, Moses and his interactions there. In Jesus' day, in the apostles, it was healings and exorcisms and things like that. And so they would say, so so here people appreciate literature. And so we, we have the most divinely unique literary style. Uh, this commits what is known as the design fallacy, which is to say that if something is beautiful, then that means that it's true. Oftentimes, I like to point out that... Um, uh, uh, you know, there was a movie with uh, Robin Williams several years ago, I think in the late 90s, called um, What Dreams May Come. And it's a beautiful story. I mean, just really a beautiful, beautiful movie. I don't know if it's held up well, but uh, I remember seeing it and just thinking it was beautiful. It involved reincarnation and a conception of the afterlife and all these kind of things. And it really was beautiful. Is it true? No. I mean, the atheist watching and me as a Christian, I would also, none of us would say it's true, but it is beautiful. Uh, but it being beautiful may make me kind of wish that it were true, uh, but that doesn't mean that it is true, right? Uh, so that's the design fallacy of sorts there. So the Quran, we got major problems with the Quran that we could go into, but uh, just a couple of things. Also, Allah. Now, this is this is key here. Um, what about the nature of Allah? What is the conception of God on Islam? Well, uh, Islam, Amir Islam, rests on what is known as philosophical voluntarism. That is the idea that it's not what uh, it's not that God is good; it's that whatever God does becomes good because it's God that's doing it. So this what this uh, this in along with what is known what is known as an extreme form of philosophical determinism means that uh, we hear things like that God is the one who leads astray and the one who guides he is the compeller and tyrant and haughty and according to Abdul Salib in answering Islam uh, quote hence Muslim scholars cannot avoid the contradiction that God has logically opposed characteristics by placing them outside his essence within the mystery of his will end quote that's Abdul Salib answering Islam page 147 so what I want you to understand from this is we can't actually answer Analyze these different religions and we can see which one is more likely to be true. And based on the time of writing uh, of the historical events involved uh, and based on some of these, we would say, internally in, in, inconsistent or contradictory things in uh, the person of Muhammad and what's supposed to be true about a prophet and Allah himself and then some problems with the Quran, we can see that there's much more reason to believe that Christianity is true just on this analysis. Now, if someone wanted to go through and show me what the problems are with the Bible or the nature of God on Christianity, they can do that. But Sam Harris doesn't do this for us here. He just speaks as though it's like a coin toss. When I think even Sam Harris knows it's not like a coin toss. Uh, if we merely went on the time of writing about the person of Jesus between uh, the New Testament and the Quran, well, that would be enough for us to already know that uh, that that th this claim that it's like a coin toss is just uh, simply nonsense. So what you got to do then is you've got to actually look at the evidence. You've got to look at the evidence and try to see uh, which is more likely between these uh, between those two. Christianity is more likely, uh, but how likely is it that Christianity is right? 
you might say. So take Islam off the table. What if it was just Christianity? How likely is it that it's true? Well, for that, you would have to look at our evidence in videos like the ones I've been producing on this channel and weigh those out and discuss them. But you can't just say, well, there's a lot of religions and so who knows? And in fact, in a lot of the atheist debates and, and videos that we see recently, and Matt Dillahunty does this all the time, he speaks as though, look, there's all these religions out there. So who knows? Well, there may be a lot of religions out there, but that doesn't mean that one of them is not correct, right? Uh, there may be a lot of conceptions about what's going on with the climate. And there are people that believe in climate change. There are people that don't believe in climate change. There are people that believe in various forms of climate change and all these sorts of things. And well, there's just so many views on climate change, then I guess there's really nothing going on. No, no, no. Just because there are a lot of views doesn't mean one of them is not correct, right? Uh, it may be that none of them are correct. We haven't arrived at the right one yet, but the fact that there's a lot of them doesn't speak to uh, whether one of them is true. And it's certainly not like a coin toss. Uh, we just have to do rigorous investigation. So let's keep going now and see what else. I always say in these videos, let's keep trucking. I, some, I need to make a video at some point. Let's keep trucking. Here we go. What's right? You know, we have a universe. We, now it's, we've, we've, we've eliminated all the other possibilities. We're living in this challenging universe where God has given us a highly imperfect book and, and asked us to grapple with it. But now we have the biblical claim, the New Testament claim to the divinity of Jesus and, and it, the, the necessity of believing in it and the Quranic claim that belief in Jesus' divinity leads to damnation. Now, which is more likely, that, that one of those is right uh, and the other is wrong, or that we have these competing tribes who were toiling in the context of just abysmal ignorance about the, the world and, and the, you know, the, the birth of the cosmos and the, and the destiny of any individual soul after death. Uh, you know, I would put my lot in with a wider view of the circumstance, but even if we granted your premise that, no, no, there's a good reason to believe that one of these books is perfect, we're still with a, a coin toss situation. We don't know whether to be a Christian or a Muslim. Um, and we're noticing that people are, are choosing basically on... Okay, wait, he's about to move on to something else. But I want to say here, again, like we've been saying, it's not a coin toss. It, it, you know, he's the one saying, if we were to grant, if we were to grant that one of these two uh, is correct, we still don't know which one. Well, you can certainly demonstrate which one is more likely to be true of the two. Even if you think they're both false, you can still determine which one is more likely to be true based on the evidence. This is just false. You, it's, it's, just, it's not a coin toss. You can think of some other analogy for it, but it's certainly not a coin toss. So that's just, uh, that's just incorrect, and I would expect more from Sam Harris. Um, then beyond that, uh, do we have any good reason to believe that Christianity is true? Again, you'd have to look at the evidence. Now, let's let's keep going and see what he says. On the, on the basis of accidents of birth, I mean, you're just accidentally born in Afghanistan, and then you, you choose to be a Muslim. Um, and likewise with Christianity elsewhere, uh, it is a... It's a very... Wait a minute. Uh, so he's going to raise two issues here. The first of which is that it's just an accident of birth. Now, criticizing a view based on how one comes to hold that view is uh, a genetic fallacy. Um, it doesn't matter how I came to hold the view. It may be that I, that I believe in Christianity because I was born in a largely evangelical culture in the Western world. That may be why I came to hold Christianity. But it doesn't speak to whether or not Christianity is true, does it? Uh, I mean, I may come to believe that the earth is round, more less because I read it in a comic book. And uh, believing things about the way the world works because you read it in a comic book is a terrible way to come to believe something. But if I came to believe that the earth is round because I read it in a comic book, it still doesn't speak to the fact that I read it in a comic book doesn't mean I'm wrong and the earth is not round, right? Uh, that's a genetic fallacy. It's criticizing a view based on how that how you came to hold that view. 
um, the earth is still round, even if I came to believe it in a weird way, right? And if uh, I happen to be a Christian because I was born in the evangelical Western world, uh, that doesn't mean that Christianity is false. That just speaks to how I became a Christian. It doesn't, doesn't speak to whether or not it's true. Even if you believe something that's true for bad reasons, it doesn't mean that what you're believing is false. It may still be true. So this is why this is a fallacy, and it's shocking to see him using it here. But we'll give him the benefit of the doubt because it looks like he's ramping up to a second point that's going to come right now. Very strange sort of loving God who would have created this circumstance. By mere accident of birth, you are raised to believe that a certain book was, was uh, and, and let's say rightly raised to believe that this book was you know, the perfect book. But if you happen to be born in China, you, know, you go for centuries without hearing about this. It's a, it's a, a, stra- a for, for I think obvious reasons, a totally provincial and, and uh, implausible scenario. And yet it's the scenario that most- Wait a minute, it's implausible, it's implausible and provincial. Well, again, uh, what's implausible about it? We haven't heard. It it sounds like he's hinting towards something like an argument uh, from evil as it relates to God's character, because the way he's conceptualizing it is that uh, it's not fair to people that live in other parts of the world that don't have the Christian message or didn't for a long time have the Christian message, uh, because how are they supposed to become Christians and be saved if we're considering Christianity? Um, Well, here's the thing. This is an area that in theology is often termed the fate of the unevangelized. How is God just in light of the fact that many people um, don't hear this message uh, and have lived and died without ever hearing the Christian message? Here's the thing. Uh, There's a couple of things I want to say about this. First of all, I'm going to give you some options on the table. But secondly, uh, he's presuming the answer is that those people certainly will be damned to hell those people that never heard the Christian message, that that's just a, a cut and dry sort of a thing, that, that, that uh, this means that it's not fair or it's not a very good picture of God, who's supposed to be a loving God. Well, who says that that's correct? I mean, Christians have grappled over this issue for a long time, grappled over it because the Bible is unclear about it, uh, grappled over it because the Bible doesn't give us all the answers to everything that we would like to know. Uh, I say this all the time to our students. You know, I, I, there's a lot of things about angels that I would really like to know. I think angels, the concept of an angel is a really cool idea. Obviously, it's all over pop culture. Um, and there are things I would like to know about angels. But, you know, the Bible never really sets down to tell you all about angels. Uh, what we know about angels, we pick up sort of indirectly through things that we read about in the Bible, but the Bible nowhere intends to give you this full angelology, right? So the Bible doesn't go, doesn't just follow our proclivities and tell us everything we'd like to know about everything. Um, so there are areas where we don't know, and we have to sort of speculate or use what limited evidence we have to come up with a hypothesis. So if we have a situation like this where we know that God is loving and God is just, and we, we also know that it is true that some people never heard the Christian message and lived and died as such, what can we pick up uh, from within Christianity? Now, if you say, well, yeah, but we can't, we don't believe any of this stuff. Yeah, but you're doing an internal criticism of Christianity here. You're saying even if we grant Christianity, it doesn't, it doesn't work out doesn't make sense for whatever reason. So in the internal criticism, is there anything in Scripture that Christians could point to that would give them some evidence, uh, understanding the nature of God on this, that would help us figure this answer out? Well, Christians have given several answers. So let me just run through some of those. First of all, there is the 
pretty obvious answer that some people might come to. It's the answer that my father speculated about when I was growing up and asked this question. Um, it's the answer that I think Billy Graham held to and was criticized for it by some Christians. And William Lane Craig has suggested the possibility of this being the case. And that is simply that God judges people based on the light that they're given. Uh, the Bible teaches that we have two kinds, at least two kinds of revelation. We have general revelation and special revelation. And within Christian theology, what that means is general revelation are those things you can understand about God from looking at the world around you. So uh, you can look at the creation and there's certain things that you can know. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 says that the invisible things of God, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made. Paul was teaching there that you can look at the world around you and understand certain things about the creator. In fact, he goes on to say that that means that if you don't believe in one maker God, then you're without excuse for that. Now, he was speaking specifically of idolaters, uh, but it also works for atheism today. What he's trying to say is if you don't believe in God, you don't really have an excuse because there's ample evidence, at least that a creator God exists from looking at the world around you. And then special revelation is more like what you would get in scripture, um, where you have these specific things about God that you can learn from, uh, from that you wouldn't get from nature, but that you learn about God from reading it, uh, where God revealed it to some prophet or through some apostle or something like that. So that's special revelation. So uh, with these people that never hear the Christian message, they still have general revelation. They still can look at the world around them and see that certain things must be true about the Creator. Now, this is where the speculation begins, but taking what Paul says there in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, if it were the case that some person on some island somewhere in some tribe were to look at the creation around him and say, I don't know who the one maker God is, but if I did know, I would worship that God. Uh, will God judge that person based on the limited revelation that they had? Perhaps. Uh, and some Christians have gone that way. Now, that's not my answer, but it's one of the answers that have been given. I'm just giving you all the answers that I'm aware of. Uh, secondly, there is the answer that is the Molinism answer. For those that are not familiar with Molinism, uh, Molinism is a uh, view within Christianity that uh, tries to conceptualize God's uh, predetermining of things and, uh, and man's libertarian freedom. Um, and so what Molinism says is that uh, God in his omniscience would have been aware of uh, all possible and feasible worlds. Uh, possible world. Uh, when we talk about possible world semantics, we're not talking about worlds that actually exist. We're talking about um, worlds that uh, do not contain any contradictions. So, for example, if we're if we're thinking about possible worlds or worlds that we can conceive of, if you have a world that is populated by married bachelors, that is an impossible world because it can't possibly it couldn't possibly have existed because it's contradictory. A possible world, we might imagine, for all we know, would be a world that's exactly the same as the world that we live in today, except. Uh, Winston Churchill never existed. Okay, that may be a possible world. There's nothing obviously contradictory about that world. It could have gone that way. Now, we're, again, we're not saying there is a world that actually exists like that. We're just saying that's a way that the world could have been that it's possible. There's nothing impossible about it. And so the Molinists would say God is aware of all the possible worlds. He's aware of all the ways that he could have created. And if he gives man libertarian freedom, the freedom to make real choices, then that gives you a subset of possible worlds. And God is aware of those too. And so we call these feasible worlds. And in these feasible worlds, uh, these are worlds where man has libertarian freedom, uh, but uh, and then God can choose to actualize one of those worlds of free creatures where he knows what's going to happen. 
And so he, uh, Molinist would say, he did that. He actualized one such world of free creatures, the world that we live in. And it's not perfect because uh, if God gives man libertarian freedom, uh, then you're not going to get a perfect world. But this is the best of those feasible worlds where God gives man libertarian freedom. And so uh, the way that a Molinist might speculate and apply the fate of the unevangelized or apply his Molinism to the fate of the unevangelized is to say, look, uh, it may be that God actualized a world of free creatures where only and all those people who in any pos- any feasible world would freely reject God are the people who never hear the gospel message. So that, so that God actualized a world where he knew that those people who would freely reject him anyway are the ones who never hear the gospel message. Because had they heard it, they would have rejected it. And he knows that. That's one possible answer. And that's not my answer either, but that's a possible answer on the table. Um, there is the answer given by people like, I think it's still a speculation from his end, but Jerry Walls in his book on heaven runs through several of these possibilities. And one that he runs over is the after death evangelism sort of thing, where maybe at the moment of death or just after death, uh, people who never heard the gospel are presented the gospel and given an opportunity to believe. I don't find that very plausible because of certain scriptural passages that seem to emphasize the importance of belief in the here and now. Um, even though it still would be important. But, um, and then you come to an answer that I do think is most likely probably uh, the, the correct answer. And that uh, uh, causes us to take a look at Acts chapter 10 and the story of a man named Cornelius. I'm going to very quickly read what the Bible says here in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. It says, There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. Now understand, this is a man, not a Christian, but he fears God and his whole household fears God. That means respects God and is concerned about what God thinks. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. So he's even a prayerful man praying to God. At about three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, looking intently at him, he became afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household slaves and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here's what happens. So here's a man who was concerned about what God thinks. He's seeking the the one true God. And so God recognizes that and arranges for Peter to come to give him the fuller message message of the gospel. So he's getting something from general revelation or maybe what he's heard from Jewish people and others. He's believing based on the light that he has. And so God sends more light and Peter comes to evangelize uh, Cornelius. If that is the way God works in general, and we don't know that that's how it is, but we do have a biblical example of it from the New Testament, then it's reasonable to believe that if someone is in a place where they have not heard the gospel message, and they hear, uh, they, they see what limited light about God they can from general revelation or something they've heard here or there from uh, uh, theists or even perhaps something they heard rumors about what Christians believe or whatever else, then if they're faithful over that, it, perhaps God arranges for a missionary uh, to be sent or a Bible to wash up on the shore or something like this. And we hear examples of these sorts of things happening. The International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, has reported in the past, it's my understanding, that they've reported in the past that when they've reached an unreached people group, that the unreached people group has told them that they were 
praying for and hoping for this sort of thing to happen, that God would reveal who he truly is. Um, you'll notice that God appeared to Cornelius, as, uh, allowed an angel to appear to Cornelius, and you might say, well, we don't see anything like that happening today. Well, hold on there. Check your naturalistic re uh, reservations at the door. There is a phenomenon that is uh, very well documented of uh, Muslims who have not had a Christian uh, exposure to uh, Jesus, and yet because they're in a situation where there are no missionaries and no one to reach them, they're claiming, many of them claiming, that the man in white is appearing to them and Jesus, presumably, is serving directly as the evangelist to these people. Now, if that sounds a little bit too out there for, your, for you to believe, I would encourage you to check out a paper written on this and presented at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary's Defend Conference several years ago by Adam Harwood. So you can do a little Googling and read about it there. There's an academic presentation of this. As someone who works at a school that has students all over the world. We have had many students from Muslim areas uh, who, or who had previously been in Muslim areas who talk about this phenomenon all the time. Now you can just say, well, I don't believe it, but if you're going to be open to the evidence, you've got to be open to the evidence. So um, my personal perspective is something like this Cornelius idea, uh, that if someone is open to the light of, uh, that they have, then God provides more light. Uh, so it just depends on, are you open to it or not? But the point is, whichever of these you think is true, uh, or, or whether you doubt all of them. The fact is Christians have uh, options on the table. There's nothing contradictory about the claims that we're making in this regard. It's just you may not buy them, but these serve as philosophical defeaters to the claim that this God cannot exist because he would be unloving. Well, wait a minute. There are possible ways that a just and loving God could function towards these people. So that's... Um, that's a good answer to this. So I think that's about everything that Sam Harris has to say, but let's make sure. Most people believe in the 21st century. Yeah, that's it. So uh, basically, uh, this when we get to the end of this discussion here by Sam Harris, the original question, remember, the original question was, let's see, uh, is there a possibility of a creator? And it sounds like Sam Harris's answer is yes. But I think what Sam Harris heard when he was asked, is there a possibility of a creator is, what do you think broadly about religious beliefs? Because he just kind of meanders through. And I don't like to use the term word salad, but it kind of becomes that. But in his meandering word salad, we do get several interesting topics brought up that Christians are happy to talk about and I think have compelling answers to. And when he gets to areas where it's a little bit of speculation, where we, we don't really have that information, there's still nothing contradictory. It's just, what do Christians think about this? And so it's allowed us to have a good discussion of that. I hope that this has been interesting to you. I, uh, I enjoy listening to Sam Harris. I do think he's an incredibly bright guy. But here, um, yeah, I think that uh, we didn't really get an answer. I think this was a dodge of the question uh, or just a, a happy answer that, well, it's it's not falsifiable. So, yes, there is a possibility of a creator. So you heard it from me. And I think uh, under the hood, you heard it from Sam Harris. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this video. And uh, hey, if you're not a patron, uh, we would really appreciate that. It, it, uh, it, you know, we try to make several videos a week if we can. And um, it's hard for us to do that because we have jobs as well running a seminary here. So if you would like to become a patron and you support what we're doing, uh, think about it. If you get value out of this sort of thing, uh, you listen to these videos and uh, you'd say, hey, if I were to uh, run into Dr. Jonathan Pritchett or Braxton Hunter, I might buy them a cup of coffee once a month. Then, hey, uh, just check out our Patreon uh, channel. It's uh, patreon.com slash Trinity Radio and uh, just give us a pledge. We'd really, really appreciate it. Um, I, I don't... Uh, 
when, when I go on the road and preach, I don't ask anything to go somewhere and, and speak or uh, to go to an apologetics event. Uh, people will give me will usually pay for me to show up somewhere or they'll give me some kind of a, uh, a, a donation of some sort. But I, I don't require that. Uh, but for something like this that does take up a lot of time here at, at home and uh, I have to convince my wife that I should be allowed to make these videos and things like that. Uh, it helps and we buy more equipment for the studio occasionally and the software that I use to make these videos costs uh, about $200 and so these expenses come up and it really does help us out if you can partner with us in this way. Uh, but if you don't, I'll still continue to make lots of free content for those who are not patrons. Thank you so much and I hope to see you next time on Trinity Radio.